Welcome to Office Hours, a social science podcast produced by the Society Pages at the University of Minnesota. Join us for conversations with prominent scholars, writers, and researchers as we discuss their ideas. Come in! Nicholas Kristof's recent critique of sociology, political science, and the humanities for effectively isolating themselves from larger and more public discussions of social issues has resulted in a myriad of academic responses. In this episode of The Office Hours, we share the audio of a recent panel of faculty at the University of Minnesota, including co-founder of the Society Pages, Doug Hartman, responding to Kristoff's essay. Thank you so much for coming here. Welcome to the Humphrey School. I'm Larry Jacobs, faculty here. Um, and uh, this is a great opportunity uh, to revisit what has been a very long-standing uh, discussion, debate, engagement, uh, provocation about the relationship between the academy and, I would say, society thought about most broadly. And I think that it's really important uh, as a starting point that there's not one utilitarian model of what that relationship is. There are a whole variety of models, and they've been at debate for quite a number of years, and I think uh, there's variation across disciplines. We've got three very dis- different disciplines here, and then within each discipline, there's quite a bit of variety and just how we think about ways of knowing. Um, now, I took uh, Nicholas Kristof's piece to be a healthy provocation. It was absolutely a provocation, and there's been a ton of debate about it, and um, I think that's awesome. Um, so just to quickly review, for those of you who haven't kind of followed this, um, his main charge is that there are fewer public intellectuals today than in the past. Uh, he says the problem is that uh, the social sciences and, uh, uh, and the humanities have created a culture uh, that glorifies arcane unintelligibility while disdaining impact and audience. He talks about this culture of exclusivity. Um, and uh, derides uh, what we think of as good prose as turgid prose. Um, he, he, he says that we hide our, a lot of our publications in obscure journals rather than really trying to reach out. Uh, and he also says, and this hits home, uh, my one-time love, political science, is a particular offender and seems to be trying in terms of practical impact to commit suicide. Um, so he concludes... Professors, don't cloister yourselves like medieval monks. We need you. So the reaction to this in a lot of different spots, um, uh, online and in print, have been everything from agreement with the dominant interpretation that Christoph lays out, that there's a tendency towards insularity rather than focus on impact. Uh, There have been, uh, I would say, uh, kind of friendly critics who have said, yes, you're right, but... Uh, you have neglecting uh, where there are public intellectuals and there are efforts uh, through blogs, through, through folks publishing in the New York Times uh, and elsewhere uh, to really uh, have more of an impact. There are a group of folks who have argued that, yes, there's specialization in terms of theory and methods, but let's face it, to advance knowledge, this is sometimes what is appropriate um, rather than this idea of kind of direct relevance in the way uh, in which... Uh, Christoph uh, talks about it. Um, and then I think there are others who have kind of wrestled with whether this is even an appropriate dichotomy between relevance and, and kind of scholarly rigor. 
suggesting that, that Christoph has kind of fallen for a false dichotomy. And we have got here a great panel, and I'm really pleased that these are all people who I like and know, and, and uh, all of you uh, know or like some of them. And I think by the end you'll know and like all of them. And I say that because we're going to need a high level of tolerance and civility. We've got political science, sociology, uh, cultural studies, um, and literature represented. And then within each of those disciplines, some real variety. So we're going to need to, uh, and I think we're going to find that there are differences, frankly, invited, deliberate uh, provocations. And I'll take the blame or the credit for that. Uh, but you also, I think there are going to be some similarities and themes that come out. We're going to sit, talk for a little bit, and then it's going to be just the public conversation. Uh, that's the plan. So I want to first welcome folks, Catherine Pearson, colleague, associate professor uh, in political science department, Catherine specialization in American politics, which is one of the silos we have in the field of political science, specializing in Congress. Tim Brennan has made the trek over, as I know some of you, from the East Bank. Thank you very much. Uh, Tim is a well-known scholar within uh, cultural studies and is in the English department as well. Uh, Doug Hartman is in the sociology uh, department. Uh, next to Doug is Joanne Miller, who's also in uh, political science with a specialization of political psychology and also public opinion survey research. And then uh, Joe Sauce, who is in political science and like me, also in the Humphrey School. Uh, Joe's work is in social policy, particularly looking at uh, policies oriented to poor people. Um, so, great panel. I'm going to start off with Catherine and just ask you for your uh, reflections on what Christoph has said and how you would size it up. Great. Thank you, Larry, and thank you so much for convening us, and thanks for this great audience. I look forward to, to your feedback. And I guess I'll start off by discussing the political science responses, and there's been so many responses. I certainly can't pretend that I have read all of them, but I think I've read many of them. And in general, I've observed that they fall into two categories. Um, Christoph, in general, you're right. It's important that political scientists participate in these great debates, but you've missed the boat. Political scientists are more engaged than others than ever. This is evidenced uh, by articles from Eric Voten in The Monkey Cage, for example. We are right here. Um, other articles, literally counting the number of times political science professor is mentioned in the New York Times over time and finding an increase. Um, and indeed, if you think about the blogosphere in particular, it does seem quite clear that political science research is increasingly out there, outside of paywalls for the public to consume. And part of this coincides with uh, changes in technology that makes this easier, but I think in particular with The Monkey Cage, but also with many other blogs and international relations, American politics, um, there is more of an effort to at least communicate political science research to the public um, and to an interested and engaged public, Washington Post readers, New York Times readers uh, in particular. Um, and even, even so, um, this response conveys that there is a great value in conveying our research to an interested audience, which is a sentiment I greatly agree with, and I think the political scientists could do even more than we're doing. The second category of responses, which um, seems contradictory, but one that I also find myself quite sympathetic to, is that our actual job, not to mention the reward structure that comes with it, is to do rigorous academic research that gets published in specialized journals. Um, Hans Knoll in uh, Political Science Blog, The Mischief of Factions, writes, quote, a tenured professorship is not a plum given to reward success. It's an actual job. 
Academics write those pesky, obscure papers that Kristoff finds impenetrable and irrelevant because that's how we learn things. And again, while this may seem contradictory, that is also quite true. But now I want to focus on what I think this discussion is generally missed, um, which is it should have a greater emphasis on the value of our teaching. After all, particularly at a place like Minnesota, where our classrooms are often very large, 80, 200 students, there is great public value in the teaching that we do. And the teaching that we do, particularly to undergraduates, is not teaching that is so obscure that it can only be found in very sophisticated journals, um, but indeed it is very important. It's a very important component of our job, both in terms of providing skills that makes our students, particularly in political science, engage citizens and critical thinkers and good uh, with analytic skills, and student, as students take on more and more debt and face an uncertain economy, helping our students to prepare to succeed in a changing workforce and given all the problems facing our country and world is particularly important, and it is indeed our job. Just ask taxpayers or state legislators. And the other thing that I think that we're doing increasingly well um, that Christoph has missed, not that he would know whether or not we do these things, but he doesn't seem to particularly think it's important, is that all of the ways in which academics are engaged in the community that doesn't make the New York Times, that doesn't make congressional testimony, and that doesn't appear on the schedule of the president in the, in the White House. So I take great pride in all of the talks I give to groups in the Twin Cities, whether it's to women's groups, retiree groups, citizens groups, the extension program here at the U, and not just during election season, but talks explaining why it's important for women to run for office, how Congress actually works. Um, and I serve on a board, Women Winning, whose mission is to promote the election of women to every level of office. And my service really relies on the research that I do on women in politics. And so I think academics are doing these things all over the place and should do more of it, but it's not recognized by people like Christoph who are really just looking for, as he says, participation in the great debates um, and who's visiting with the president in the Oval Office. Um, and one other sort of point about this, um, while I, when I talk on the radio or TV or write op-eds in the Star Tribune or MinPost, it definitely is not as important as telling the president how to engage in arms negotiations. There's no doubt about that. But it provides political context to viewers who didn't necessarily tune in to learn about politics, but learn about politics is a byproduct. The final obvious point is that even if we redefine our job to prioritize getting our research out there, there are many trade-offs. Any individual academic or political scientist can't do everything at the same time. Different scholars have different strengths, and the same individuals may make many different contributions at various points in their careers. And I think this is really important when thinking about this. Um, but I do think, having said that, that the discipline, departments, and universities could do a better job of recognizing that civic engagement and contributing to these debates through our research, through our commentary, through our participation is valuable in its own right not clumped in, as it so often is, with service to the discipline, service to the department, and service to the university. But it is something valuable in and of itself. And from the university perspective, this is going on all over the country, burdening faculty and departments with more bureaucratic requirements and bigger class sizes doesn't help us carve out time to do this very important work. And finally, I don't give speeches or provide media, media commentary because I think that it will help my career as a political scientist. Indeed, I decline many opportunities because of the potential adverse effects. I do these things because I value providing information and context to the public and because I don't want women 
and especially little girls who may happen to be listening, reading, or watching to think that the only professors that talk publicly about politics are men. Thank you, Catherine Pearson. Tim Brennan. Okay. <clears throat> I think... Um, what I'd like to do is concentrate first on the frame, that there's a self-congratulatory aspect of Christoph's column that I think needs to be brought up to the surface, that in part by talking about accessibility and popularity, he's saying that he as a journalist has figured out something that academics need to learn, you know, write paragraphs that are one sentence long, for example, or uh, stick to the, the common sense. It seems to me that uh, we, we need to uh, demand something of the public when it comes to the issue of intelligibility uh, or obscurity. Uh, that is an obligation, it seems to me, that goes both ways. And when you take a look at his column, regardless of its merits or demerits, there's no analysis, uh, there's no examples that he gives of these uh, things that have gone wrong. And it's, of course, highly repetitive of a similar kind of article that's been written again and again and again. So is Christoph Wright to say that university intellectuals are sometimes difficult to understand. I think there's two things to say about that. One is that there's no question that there's a lot of pretentious writing and exorbitant, abstracted writing and thinking in the humanities. Um, there's a kind of political evasiveness that comes from this kind of writing that many of us have been at pains to point out and protest. It's the usual bullshit of professionalization. It's the kind of thing, however, that also can be expected in any environment that has language and thought as its material media of exchange. And so it's one of the consequences, it seems to me, of that very setting. However, I would say something else in a less defensive vein, a less concessional vein, and that would be that truth has a form, and it demands a certain mode of expression to be truth at all. And just like literary modernism, the theory of natural selection and the special theory of relativity, the form can challenge and even infuriate everyday readers. So let's be all for accessibility, but only while noting the accessi that accessibility involves, as I said, a two-way obligation. At, at its best, the university is a place that invents the world, it remakes the world, and innovation is almost always at first puzzling. There's another problem, too, and that is, can this charge of obscurity be transferable? I mean, is it fungible? Here, I think it's important to say that, you know, in Scientific American, let's say, or in the New York Times science section, if physicists are unable to explain their at present incompatible and incoherent theories of the physical universe, it is the public, not they, who are thought to have failed. For difficulty of the good sort to be applauded by the press, it must be scientific, not social, cultural or critical, as though science in those fields, the cultural and the social, uh, were not really science, or as though everybody's opinion was equal when it came to talking about culture. So we begin to see that this complaint is not really about the difficult or the obscure, but an obscurity we fear or disrespect. The disparity is all the worse in that physicists unable to be understood otherwise, tend to plagiarize the humanities, drawing metaphorically on the philosophy seminars to explain the Big Bang, bang and the God particle in a discourse that's essentially lifted from Heraclitus and Lucretius. We can then justify a kind of difficult as the only way around depressing sameness and stupidity of self-interested common sense. At this, and I would do so and turn the tables by saying yes, to understand high-level discourse we need more general access to higher education. So actually, the argument should be 
more access to higher education. It seems to me that the Christoph's argument is not only uh, to be uh, criticized for not alluding to the context in the university of privatization and the runaway growth of the administration at the expense of faculty, the defunding of the university, and so on, but that his article is, in fact, in the service of those very operations. This is a discourse that is not designed to do away with intellectuals in the university. He understands, like everybody else, that it is out of the university that most of the innovation and thought comes. It's out of the humanities seminar room that most of the script writers uh, for Hollywood and popular television come, translating Derrida and Foucault into the Matrix. <laughs> he understands this, so he only wants to keep the price of our labor down. And that's another thing I would say. There's a kind of uh, willed ahistorical emptiness that he is attempting to equate with the popular. Um, it seems to me then also that we, uh, we have to note that on a very basic level, his argument is also factually untrue. I mean, when I was in graduate school in the 1980s, very many of us were writing for the nation, the village voice, on occasion, even his New York Times. If anything, this process has only expanded exponentially, obviously with social media and with well-established online uh, journals and magazines that are highly respectable. Uh, I can think of many, uh, Jacobin and Plus One, uh, the Los Angeles uh, Times Book Review, uh, the Boston Review, there's many uh, of this sort, widely read, um, that there is a whole phalanx of people in academia that I know that are constantly writing for the mainstream popular media of this sort, a kind of crossover, serious nonfiction media, writing reviews, op-eds, and expose journalism of a review sort. So there, there's a lot of these people, and there's even more than you would think, because what this process that Christoph has not addressed, that's happening as a crisis in the university, has produced is a lot of really well-educated, pissed-off, semi-employed people. And there's a crea it's created a dangerous class, I think. And this is a positive thing, although perhaps not so positive for the people who have to live under those conditions of employment. So I would say that when he says that it's a problem of people coming out of the university not being understood, perhaps it's just the opposite. Perhaps it's that what they're talking about is being only well too, under only too well understood and too widely disseminated. It may be discounted by the likes of a New York Times op-ed columnist or the people at the Heritage Foundation or Fox News or other corporate media. But the problem is not that it's accessible, but that it is. It seems to me that we've got a movement of underpaid intellectuals with a lot of seminar knowledge and incisive style and nothing to lose. Thanks. Tim Brennan, thank you very much. Doug Hartman. So um, there's a lot of complaints in carping about this piece uh, in, the, in sociology, the field that I'm in, um, a field that spent a decade talking about public engagement and how a whole movement of public sociology um, in spite of which seems to be a field that is very little appreciated or understood in the general public. Um, and so partly from that, um, where kind of where I sat on this is I, I actually thought that um, Christoph got a lot right as it applies to the field that I'm from, and especially 
in to the extent that what I saw him calling for from my point of view was for um, social science to be more visible and influential in the culture. Um, so uh, there was a lot, and I, I think um, there's a lot of reasons that it isn't, and a lot of the opposite, uh, people who are critical of the article talked a lot about those things, you know, political conservatism, naivete and ignorance about social structures, distrust of experts and disinterest in facts, anti-intellectualism more generally. I think all those things are true. Um, but I also think, at least from sociology, the lack of a real um, visibility and influence in the public culture has a lot to do with ourselves. And I've been disappointed that sociologists, and not everyone, but haven't, instead of lashing out, <laughs> haven't taken to heart the, the criticisms and, and problems that we ourselves have created. Um, and this is informed by having tried to do this, a lot of this kind of work, looking at the public discourse and the absence of sociology and sociological insight and knowledge, and talking with media, policymakers, and the general public about their interest and quest in the ideas and information that we produce. I'll just give you a couple examples. I think one of the big problems is our research, and I think sociology not alone in this, is hidden behind paywalls. Paywalls that none of us here at the university ever have to worry about. And the reality is that high-level journalists, mid-level journalists, people in the towns that we want to talk to, they can't get any of our articles, whether they're well-written or not. It, it's, it, they don't have ex access to that. And we don't make it possible for them to get it because of the institutional structures about how we distribute knowledge, but also because of our own disdain <coughs> for translational work and dissemination. Um, we think it, in a lot of ways, above ourselves. We just produce knowledge, and then other people are supposed to use it and consume it. Um, and, and even our the uh, reluctance to take time to talk to reporters and folks who are looking for information and help. I mean, the panel we have here are people that, I think, do that. But I'd, I think, on the whole, um, from where I sit, there's probably fewer of my colleagues across the country that really take that time and invest that energy um, than the representatives of us sitting here. Um, and more than that, there's a tremendous cynicism and suspicion of our colleagues who do this kind of work. It's like you're somehow shilling for yourself or, or trying to get famous independent of your research or your institution. And I, I think that's a real serious issue and problem. Um, the other thing I'll, I'll end with is I think there's a real misunderstanding of what sociologists and social scientists more generally are best positioned and expected to contribute. Um, where it, and this is where, and maybe another way to say it is where our credibility and legitimacy lies. The problem here is not just the leftist leanings of sociology or any other field that, that Christoph alludes to. Uh, it's with not understanding um, that <coughs> what folks are looking for and really need are basic facts and broader perspectives on how to make sense of the worlds that they live in and, and make sense of them in ways that go beyond the usual um, echo chamber, the right-left political discourse that dominates in the mass media. And too often, I think, when a lot of uh, my colleagues think about public engagement, they think it's about activism, and they think it's about advocacy. And there's a place for that. But a lot of what I think people are really looking for 
is the more basic, the foundations that our, our own advocacy may come from in terms of facts and information and perspectives about systems and history that this has come from. Um, and, and I think we, we do ourselves a disservice by not realizing that when, <coughs> when someone like Christoph is asking for public, soci public science, social science to be in the public sphere, that's the kind of stuff that he's looking for, and he's not going to be impressed by our colleagues writing op-eds on particular points of view, unless those are op-eds that are trying to insert information and perspective that's missing from the public debate. So I'll leave it at that. Thank you, Doug Hartman. Joanne Miller, Political Science. So I'm going to play the role of curmudgeon, and those of you who know me in this room know I'm not really playing a role. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to take my time here to critique Christoph's article. What I want to do is I want to take a few minutes to critique the response um, to Christoph's article. And I want to focus on one of the responses, the one that I saw as the most dominant response, which is the one that Catherine <coughs> opened with, which is the, yes, we should be involved. Yes, we are. Here's the list of all the blogs, and in particular mine, uh, where, where we're involved. And Christoph, you just aren't paying attention. I think that this misses the boat completely. Um, I think that it accepts a premise that's a dangerous premise for social science um, at a crossroads um, currently. And I want to make three points. But the premise is basically that, and this can get, and, and I saw this in many of the responses, and then, in, and then again in Christoph's response to the responses, that it almost becomes that this becomes a moral imperative for social scientists, and he called out social scientists and you know, political scientists in particular, uh, but this, this is a moral imperative. We should, we must, and in fact, we have to be publicly engaged. Okay. Now, I've got no problem with public engagement, but I want to I I start there with the accepting of the premise, because I think that it leads us down three really problematic roads. Um, the first, why social scientists? Why not engineers? Academic engineers could have a lot to say about the crumbling infrastructure of our country. Why isn't there a call for engineers to make their academic research more accessible to the public? Why not statisticians? Why not computer scientists? Okay. The implication here, and it's, this is along the lines of something that Tim said, is that what we do as social scientists is in fact inherently easy and that we intentionally make it obscure. Okay. And you saw that in, in Christoph's piece, um, that we hide behind quantitative methods, we hide behind jargon, and that we make it obscure intentionally. Okay. And that engineers, what they do is hard, and it's science, and therefore it has credibility as science. Okay. Uh, and it's not their job to translate that um, to the public. So first, if we accept the premise, we're accepting this notion that social scientists need to be called out here more than any other uh, um, discipline. The second concern I have is that um, if we go down this path of accepting the premise, um, what we end up with is um, a situation in which we privilege certain types of research over others. Research that is easily translatable um, to the public. 
Um, and so we get into Coburn's world, Tom Coburn's um, world here, where um, the American Political Science Association, whenever political science is under assault, says, but we do really, we, yes, we're not, we're not curing cancer, but we do lots of things that actually have implications for the world. What are the two things that APSA points to? War and the economy. Because they're the two things that are the easiest things for um, the American Political Science Association to say, look, we have something to say about these two things. What happens? An amendment gets passed that is now no longer uh, in play um, to only fund National Science Foundation political science research that focuses on the, improving the economy uh, or um, telling us something about affecting our national security. Now, thankfully, um, thanks to the American Political Science Association and other so social science and, and hard science associations, um, hard work on this, we've, we've beaten that this time. Okay? But this is going to continue to come up. And if we, um, if we accept the premise, um, we, we end up privileging certain types of research over others. And the third thing that I'll just, I'll, I'll just say here is that uh, we, by accepting this premise, we're also letting journalists off the hook. I wasn't trained to get on television and to talk about my research or to talk about the latest election. That's not what I was trained to do. There's value in it, and I respect people who can do it. I'm terrible at it. Um, but I, it's, it, I wasn't trained to do that. Journalists were trained to do this. Why is not part of the response, and I saw some of this, Hey, Christoph, you know, you know where to find us. Call us. Um, do your legwork. Ask us the questions. Help us translate it. Um, so again, by, by jumping on the, yes, we should do it, here we are doing it, bandwagon, I think we're also leaving journalists, uh, getting them off the hook um, a bit more than, than we should. So I'll just stop there. And, um, and Joe Sauce, Humphrey, Political Science. Hi, thanks for putting this together, <clears throat> Larry. Um, as I drove back to campus yesterday from giving a talk at the Minnesota Council of Nonprofits Conference, uh, and crossed the 75 mile per hour mark going upward uh, in order to try and make it back for class <laughs> on time, I was thinking about this uh, panel at the same time I was thinking, this is personal, uh, as I was trying to balance my public <laughs> engagement with my, uh, with my duties here at the university. Um, and I would like to speak to it from a very personal position. Um, at one level, I should be the audience, a uh, natural audience for Christoph, and I am in some ways. Uh, I supported and joined the perestroika movement in political science some years ago, uh, partly because of its demands uh, that the discipline begin to speak more clearly and directly to uh, questions of public importance. Uh, I have struggled throughout my uh, graduate school years and professional life uh, as a political scientist um, who wants to deal um, with a number of public problems and I think Doug particularly um, really put his finger on some of the prejudices against doing that um, that somehow you're, you're less scholarly if you do that you're tainted in some way or you're an activist rather than a scholar or whatever it might be um, I think it's very important, I think, and I think that although Christoph traffics in some very old stereotypes, um, you know, about the academic who's off 
not caring about anything in the real world and uses all this jargon. It's a, there's a very real um, problem in the social sciences today that we need to confront. Um, and I think we have a lot to offer. But I also want to spend most of my time actually cutting the opposite direction uh, and giving a perspective as someone who's a political scientist interested in power um, and has worked in the field of poverty studies uh, for the last 15 years or so. Um, one of the things that I think uh, Christoph misses in his uh, piece, and that we haven't talked about enough here today, is the question of power, right? Um, Christoph is fond of touting the fact that he was a political science uh, major. He brings that up frequently. Um, and I wonder sometimes if in any of his classes he ever read the E.E. Schatzschneider, and particularly uh, the, the place where Schatzschneider says that it's, it's sort of characteristic of those with privilege to look at those uh, beneath them who are not participating uh, and to blame it on their shiftlessness and apathy uh, and various characteristics of what's wrong with them rather than the way things are organized uh, that give them privilege. And I, and I think about this in relation uh, to our our connection to, to public uh, debates and discourse. And I'll, I'll make three points along these lines. Um, as welfare reform passed in 1996, uh, I was part of a number of us as academics who immediately started to research things like, uh, hey, you know, uh, everybody's celebrating the welfare caseloads going down, we're dealing with the problems of dependence. You know what we can actually show you? It's going down because people are being excluded at the front doors of welfare offices who desperately need aid not because people, as the discourse is saying, are being moved out into jobs. We began to show things like uh, the policies that are being passed and the way they're implemented are deeply racist uh, and that there are tremendous problems of racial bias running throughout the system. Now, what did we confront? We confronted a situation in which bipartisan legislation was being celebrated as one of the great achievements of social policy history by both the Democratic Party and the Republican Party. Uh, we confronted a situation in which very quickly, as the economy was doing well in the late 90s, no one wanted to talk about any problems in the system. Um, we were, in short, in a variety of ways, simply excluded from the major conversation. It was just impossible. There were things that were widely known among academics and academics who spent tons of time speaking publicly in their community, trying to talk about these things, were just simply not looked at. Um, you can look for a long time. This was also the case in the area of incarceration, a variety of others. The terms of the conversation, as Shash Schneider and lots of other people have taught us, are a product of power in certain ways. And as we try to speak to that conversation, whether we're able to get in or not depends on whether we adopt those terms right, in certain ways, which leads me to my second point, which is that during my time working at the Institute for Research on Poverty and a number of other places, uh, I found out something about power and, and its relationship to the drive to be relevant to the current conversation. Um, what I found was that my colleagues who were all great social scientists and deeply wanted to affect what was happening and contribute uh, to public life and public policy um, were repeatedly confronted with the situation in which they were told uh, you know, that, hey, you know, if you want to uh, participate in this conversation, if you want to, to be relevant, you, really, you, better, you should put together a conference on deadbeat dads. Um, you should really focus on the question of whether welfare benefits encourage women to have uh, more uh, children in order to get more welfare benefits, then you'll be relevant, right? Uh, there was no money available, there was no support, no one wanted to hear about a variety of issues, uh, about what was happening in the labor market, about other sorts of issues. And time and again, what I saw was 
the, the desire to preserve <coughs> our seat at the table, not just to keep the money flowing, right, for the federal funders and everyone else, but the desire to going forward be a voice for low-income people, the desire to not lose that legitimacy led us to sit on our hands, that my colleagues would say, if we speak out against this right now, and especially if we speak out against it publicly, we're going to be cut out of the conversation <coughs> with the state, and then we're not going to be able to help these communities in all these ways. We've got, we're going to do far more for these communities if we go along with this conversation and keep the seat at the table and can keep our voice. And then the last point I'll make about this discourse being set on the terms of power um, is a very straightforward one that a variety of sociologists um, and political scientists have made, which is that this call by Christoph in some ways is, is a call to speak to the common sense uh, of people, uh, to speak in terms that are commonsensical, to speak to the discourse as people currently uh, understand it. Well, um, there's no shortage of theories uh, and empirical work as well, um, looking at the ways in which common sense is infused with power, shaped by power. Um, and in many ways, our jargon and the things that are uh, criticized by Christoph are efforts to get outside of that way of thinking, uh, to get some critical distance from the common sense and the way it is shaped um, through power. I'm reminded of uh, a couple of years ago during the perestroika movement in political science when Ian Shapiro called on all social scientists to go out and do problem-driven research. My initial reaction was, hell yes, that's great. We need to be working on problems in a variety of ways. And I thought he was, he had a lot of great things to That's to say, I still do. But I also read a great response um, by Ann Norton, where she said, you know what? If, all, if, if you guys are all going to go off and run off and start chasing these problems and trying to, to solve these problems in various ways, you might want to leave a few of us back, a few scholars back, um, to actually think some about the way those problems are being defined um, and what's getting called a problem and why it's, why it's a problem and for whom it's a problem. Um, as we rush off and try and be relevant to certain problems, we are always in the, in the process of rushing off um, to enact and act upon problems as they've been defined by people in certain positions of power. And we need to be careful about that. In other words, to sum up, um, Christoph is fond, actually, another thing besides saying he's a political scientist, Christoph's also fond of using a phrase um, where he says, uh, we need people who are thinking outside the box. <laughs> well, what he's really doing for, to us here is, is calling for us to think inside the box. And I want to say maybe he was a little more right in some of the times when some of what we do that's very important and a vital contribution to public life in a variety of ways is that we think outside the box, which is always going to make it difficult for us to just be incorporated uh, into the dominant conversation. If you are interested in hearing the question and answer session that followed this discussion, please go to the Office Hours section of the Society pages, where a link to the full audio hosted by the Humphrey School of Public Affairs is posted. Thank you.